All right, good morning, beloved. It was great to be here with all of you. Today we have yet another wonderful text. God is so gracious to us, I tell you. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. And our text for this morning will be verses 15 to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, this is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. If you've been with us over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, you know the immense mountaintops that the Apostle Paul has taken us to of uh, theological truths in verses, well, in verse 3. Paul praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These blessings include and can be summed up being chosen by the Father in verses 4 to 6, being redeemed by the Son in verses 7 to 12, and being sealed by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 to 14. And he speaks directly to all of these incredible blessings that God has blessed us with through the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, according to the riches of his grace and to the praise of his glory. And, you know, you come down after that passage just overwhelmed with what God has done on our behalf, fully aware of this catalog of privileges that came with any believer's life in Christ. And it's so important that we know that. It's so important. This isn't a description of some um, overachiever or some holier-than-now Christian, but of every single believer in Christ who has experienced all of these spiritual blessings, these truths, that are listed in verses 3 to 14. 
If you've ever read any Martin Lloyd-Jones, he often writes about how our supreme need is to know God. He mentions that in a bunch of his books. And, and what he meant, of course, was to know God well, to know God deeply, to have that gnosis, that knowledge, that true communion knowledge with God, to know him truly as he has revealed himself in his word. Now, of course, there is a sense in which every believer has come to know God. Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so if you have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, you have come to know God. And yet there is another sense in which we should know God far more deeply than we did at first. For example, uh, after 25 years as a believer, this is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He goes on to say in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or, or that I'm perfect. And then in verse 14, he says, but I press on toward the goal for the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if that was true of the Apostle Paul, who wasn't exactly your average believer, how much more is it true of us? As the prophet wrote in Hosea 6.3, let us press on to know the Lord. And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul wants to, to take us to today and, and next week, that, that his readers in Ephesus would, would know God more deeply is the main theme of Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23. Here we see Paul ask God to make all of those incredible truths that we just studied in verses 3 to 14 more real for the believer. If Christians have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and they do, then what Paul wants his hearers to understand is that he's been praying for them that they might know these things in a more experiential kind of a way, in a more tangible kind of a way. All the truths and all of the theology of the prior paragraph, that they would get that, that they would understand that. But what's happening here is he's also modeling how we should pray for other believers as well. And as the church... We have a deficiency in how we pray for one another. I think everyone would say, yeah, I'd like to grow in my prayer life. And all of us would be encouraged to know that a brother or sister is praying more for you, right? So we have a deficiency. And it's not just in the deficiency of actually praying for one another, but there's a deficiency in our ability to pray effective prayers. Because we are so often consumed with the temporal in our prayers. Now, 
There's nothing wrong with praying for your sick aunt or uh, your bad back. And I want to pray for your sick aunt, and I want to pray for your bad back. And God cares about every facet of our lives, so don't hear me wrong. But you'll notice in the New Testament, rarely do we see him put those matters as the first of importance. Instead, the prayers of the New Testament are more about giving praise and adoration to God the advancement of the kingdom, that you would be bold in sharing your faith, that you would have the peace of God in your hearts, that your love for one another would increase, that you'd be strengthened with all power and in wisdom, that you would be holy and blameless, that you would know the knowledge of God's will, that you'd be filled with the joy, peace, and patience of God, that you would forgive one another as you've been forgiven, that you'd devote yourselves to prayer, that's what the Bible talks about when we pray. And so what Paul is doing is he's going to, to model that prayer for us. And throughout the letter of Ephesians, we see his first prayer here in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The second prayer is in chapter 3, in verses 14 to 21. And then at the end of the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, in verses 18 to 20, Paul tells us, to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and to keep alert with perseverance. And in fact, our study of Ephesians really should help every single person here in the church to grow in their prayer life as, as this passage in particular shows us how we ought to pray for other believers. And so I think this is a very practical uh, passage, you know, um, Sometimes we, we look at a passage like this and think, man, this sounds so theological. There's so much going on here. And, and there is, but, but I think it's also very, uh, a practical example of how we can pray for other believers. In fact, I'm convinced one of the greatest resources of heaven that we're not taking full advantage of is the power of prayer. Nothing will strengthen a church like this than if the believers here are firmly committed to lifting one another up in prayer. And not just in their ordinary needs, but in their, in their spiritual, eternal well-being. And that's what we get a picture of here. Now, if I'm going to sum up this massive paragraph into... Uh, one sentence, I think I would say that Paul prays that these believers would have a stronger grasp on all that God has done for them in Christ. That they would have a stronger grasp of verses 3 to 14 and what that means practically in their life that they, as they live out their faith. And I think this model prayer is, is very repeatable. And without even needing to ask the question of a brother or sister in Christ, how can I pray for you, which is a great question, we can always pray this way. We can always pray these things we're going to see in the text over the next couple weeks. And so let's look at this section of scripture, which is really so rich and so theologically Christ-centered. But, but let's think about it, because Paul is writing in the perspective of presenting his prayer in a revealing kind of way. And 
you'll notice it's not him actually praying to God, but rather he's modeling it. He's demonstrating for us how he prays. So we get to see the heart of the Apostle Paul and how he prays. And so let's look at this prayer of the Apostle Paul. What we're really seeing here are our instructions then on how we can play, pray by way of a model. And I want to highlight three progressions. We're only going to get to one and a part of another one today in this prayer as it teaches each of us how to pray better for other believers. So let's jump right into it. How can we pray for other believers? First of all, we can thank God for his grace in them. We, we can thank God for God's grace in their life. And this is what Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus as he has heard of their great faith in Jesus. Notice how it begins in verses 15 to 16. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. The first thing the apostle says here is for this reason, and that connects us back to verses 3 to 14. And all of those spiritual blessings God has done on our behalf in Christ, from our election in him before time began, to the final salvation of which the indwelling spirit is our guarantee. Everything we need to live is found in Christ to the praise of his glory. These are, in Paul's beautiful expression, according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. And for this reason, whether this was a report from Tychicus, as we saw at the end of the book of Colossians, or someone else, the apostle who had spent three and a half years in Ephesus knew this church extremely well. It had been at least four years since he had last seen him, though. Paul has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And by taking this theological look at what makes a Christian a Christian and then going into this very practical moment of prayer, he's reminding us that there's a, a biblical balance that we all need to seek in realizing who we are in Jesus, realizing what God has done for us on our behalf in Christ verses 3 to 14, and appropriating those things. Applying those things. That's this paragraph in verses 15 to 23. In other words, it's one thing to be able to rattle off a, a list of these big theological truths. It's another thing to understand those truths in a personal way, in a deepening way, in a way that affects the way that you live. And so Paul's not telling us something new in this paragraph. He's rehearsing those deep truths that we looked at the last couple of Sundays, and he's asking that God would, would rub them into you. To rub them in like a seasoning. That, that God would make them deepen. And that's the balance, I think, we need to seek, especially in prayer. We, we never want to separate praise and petition. Praise and prayer go together. Think about what God has done 
and what God can do in the hearts and lives of believers complement each other so well. <laughs> so when Paul looks at the believers in Ephesus, he doesn't see first off their sins or their shortcomings or their failures. He doesn't see their, their quirks. Instead, Paul looks at people, even the messed up people, as in the church in Corinth, and he thanks God that they're saints, that they're set apart unto God. And that's what's happening in verses 15 and 16. He thanks God for his grace in them, and that's a model way to pray. It's very easy when you live your Christian life in the context of a local church, which every Christian should, and to rub people the wrong way, and to be rubbed the wrong way, and to offend each other, and to ignore each other. Even ones with this sweet, sweet fellowship that we have here. These are the slights and difficulties that are in every family and there in every local church. And rather than looking at each other in all the uncomfortable or uncountable ways that we fall short and that we don't live up to each other's expectations, and it's helpful as a starting point to remember who these people are you're sitting next to and they are the saints of God. And Paul sees two things in them that are the manifestations of his grace and this is the evidence of God's grace in them. There are two of the very most basic elements of the Christian faith and we see them in verse 15. Paul heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Faith and love. And if you're wondering where's that three-peat of hope, it's down a little further in verse 18. Faith, hope, and love. But here it's just faith and love. And these are basic. We all, we all know these. Faith is that expression of trust and, and confidence in God. It's, it's a horizontal uh, expression. And, and that faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a faith that can be as little as a mustard seed. And just one little spark of it changes your life forever. Before you had faith, you were an unbeliever. You did not believe. And you had no trust or confidence in God. But when you were born again, something miraculous happened. Something supernatural happened. And suddenly you trusted in Christ. You came to believe in him and to hold on to his promises. And that's what we call faith. And so when Paul looks at these Christians in Ephesus, he wants them to know he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and it's something that would be transcendent in every single Christian testimony. And that's the presence of faith in God. That's going to be in every true believer. So when you look at your brothers and sisters in this church and you're moved to pray for them, first thing 
you can thank God for is their faith in the Lord. And let me tell you, that's no small matter. There's plenty of people that look at us and say, faith is no big deal, so what? But Ephesians 2.8 says that faith is a gift from God himself. Philippians 1.29 says, faith has been granted to you. And so faith is not just an ordinary expression, it's a supernatural confidence that God places in us. You now have confidence, you believe, you have faith in Christ. I mean, nobody comes into this world believing the gospel. We're enemies of God. We've all turned our own way. And if you've ever shared the gospel with someone before, you understand that is the natural inclination and bent of man. They'll reject it. And so when we look at other believers, we thank God, not for a small matter, but for a great matter, that they have faith in Jesus Christ. And pray, thank God for their faith. And mine, does their faith encourage me and strengthen me? Man, does their faith come along beside me as I'm walking through this trial? God, I love their faith. Stretch their faith. Do you know I pray that over our church every Sunday morning? Stretch your faith. I'm included in it, but get these people to Get their faith on, man. But not only does Paul thank God for their faith, but he thanks God for their love. Faith and love. All throughout Scripture we see faith and love as, as the marks of a true believer. These are the signs. These are the fruit. These are the evidences. And you can just flip back, actually, a couple pages in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6. For it tells us, in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, this was a, a real big deal in the, in the first century church. Are you circumcised? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You're not earning your faith by some work that you do, but only faith working through love. That's the heart of the issue. Love. So, in other words, it's not about external things. First and foremost, Christianity is faith in the Son of God. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then the expression of that faith before anything else is going to be love. You're going to see a heart and an intent of love. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, well, I love them in the Lord. Which seems to imply that they have no personal affection nor commitment to the need of that individual at all. They extend a certain spiritualized kind of love only because the other person is a fellow believer. But that's not genuine love. To truly love 
a person in the Lord is to love them as the Lord loves them, genuinely and sacrificially. It's never easy. Love is never easy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 tells us, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, that we are now in the life of Christ? That if you die tomorrow, you'll be with Christ. That if you die tomorrow, you will be alive on this side of heaven. Because we love the brothers, the, the fellowship, and whoever does not abide, abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. Important as sound theology is, it is no substitute for love. For without love, the best doctrine is like a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so you should see these in the life of every believer because the summary of the entire law, according to Jesus, the law and the prophets, hangs on these two things. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. And so... What does that love for God look like? Well, it looks like trust. It looks like faith. It looks like confidence in, in his word and what God has said. And, and what does that love for neighbor look like? It looks like a mutuality in the church, serving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another. And so Paul, who has heard of their faith in the Lord and seen their love for one another, hasn't ceased to give thanks for them as he remembers them all in his prayers. And because faith and love are, are not an ordinary expression, but an extraordinarily divinely inspired expression of God's work in them, he doesn't think of their faith and love. No. Paul gives thanks to God for you. I thank God for you. Verses, God, didn't you see how great my faith and love is down here that I do? This faith, my, my faith, this is a gift from God. So thank him for it. Good place to start. It's a good place to start. You don't even need to call, what, how, how can I pray for you? You can thank God for the grace in your brother or sister. Second, <clears throat> we ask God to give them a deeper understanding. We, we can pray to God to give our brother or sister a, a deeper understanding. Deeper understanding of who he is and what he has done for them in Christ. And in context of chapter 1, this is applying verses 3 through 14 as now Paul wants all those to be shook down deeper in their souls. He, he wants to personalize all the riches that they have in Christ. We got to know all of these riches are made available to us. And again, so he wants to rub these 
truths into us so, so we get it. So we stop walking around like we're spiritually malnourished Christians with all the riches that heaven gives. Oh, if I only had this, God. He wants us to understand this. So notice what he says in verse 17. Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes, verse 18, of your hearts enlightened. And we'll stop right there. The reminder of this chapter is a petition in which Paul prays for God to, to give believers a deeper comprehension, a deeper appreciation, a, a deeper understanding of who they are in Christ. Now in Paul's petition, he uses three phrases that get at the idea of understanding. In verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And then in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Let's start first in verse 17, as those two phrases seem to cause a lot of people problems. And rather than picking those two phrases totally apart, I want you to understand it in the most simple way possible. First of all, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation are not two separate things. Okay? They're not two separate things. These are all synonymous phrases that are talking about knowledge, talking about understanding, talking about wisdom. And then the phrase in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Again, a similar idea, though that one's talking about making something more evident, to, to, to light it up, to, to reveal something. But it's the same idea of, of knowledge, to know, understanding. And I mean, today we have all kinds of light. I mean, look at me, I'm cooking under these things. All we have to do is flip a switch and, and we got more light than we know what to do with. In Paul's world, 2,000 years ago, when the sun went down, it got dark. It got dark. The brightest light they had probably ever seen besides the moon would have been a bonfire. Even out here in the sticks, it's hard to even see the, the stars on, on most nights, even because of just the lights in town. Lights are, are everywhere today. Not there. The most common and ordinary expression of light in their world would have been a, a little oil lamp, right? Or maybe a torch if they're going out. But that was about it. And so when Paul talks about being enlightened, he's talking about something so bright and so revealing that in a dark world like theirs, it's a word that would catch their attention, to enlighten, that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so let me just walk through these and, and, and show you and how these phrases, they really help to explain one another. First of all, notice how Paul says, your heart has eyes. Your heart has eyes. This is a Hebrew terminology idea that's used 
here in the Greek by Paul. But Paul is asking God to give them spiritual eyes to see who God is and, and what God has done for them. Here, to be enlightened isn't some New Age idea of enlightenment. It's that God would open our eyes to know him and his word. Inspiration is what we refer to as the nature of scripture. Illumination is how we understand scripture. It is absolutely necessary that we seek the Spirit's help in understanding and applying His truth practically in our lives. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask. There's a great example I have to share with you. And you guys know the story. I've shared this with you before. Jesus is walking with the, a couple of apostles, a few disciples, and He's set to open their eyes. And while he's, he's walking with them, it's after the crucifixion. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But as he's walking with these two disciples, he's veiled himself so they don't recognize him. He doesn't look like Jesus. He doesn't sound like Jesus. And he shows up and Jesus is like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, haven't you heard? They killed Jesus. It's all over. And they're all defeated and walking on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us in 24:31, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Jesus revealed himself to him. And then he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he open to us the scriptures and then a little while later jesus shows up again this time in the upper room where the apostles are all walked away and the apostles up there jesus shows up peace be with you anyone got any food around here i'm hungry and he sits down with them and he has a bible study with them and luke 24 44 tells us jesus said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, your Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And imagine being in that Bible study. He just takes you right through the Old Testament and says, there I am, there I am. That looked ahead to me. That was a prophecy of me. See how I fulfilled that. Remember me saying that? And they're going, oh, wow. That's the eyes of your heart being enlightened. And, and, and so this concept of knowledge simply comes down to this. This is what Paul is praying for. He's asking God to give them a, a, a deeper understanding of, again, who Christ is, what, what, Christ has done, what Christ has done. How about the spiritual wealth that you are so wealthy in Christ? You have everything that you need. You have more than you need in Christ. But we need to know who he is and what he has said to apply those truths properly 
God should be the most important thought that you have. And this illumination is furthering your understanding and, and deepening it. This would be sanctification and growth, but specifically as it relates to the knowledge of God and how important it is that we should know God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. How much do we need God's help? A lot. And for his, his spirit of wisdom and understanding to our spirits, he's like, I want to speak your language. Let me speak my language to you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. This is illuminating our minds. It's like a, a spotlight so that we would know him more intimately, fully, completely, so you can have rest in him. Why are you still working? You should be resting in Christ that I may know him and the, and the power of his resurrection. I want to know him more. Everything else is dung. Show me Christ. I need this. You need this. We all need this. And so we need to pray for this for ourselves and for our church. All this is to say, when you pray for other believers, isn't it an automatic thought that we should pray, God, I want to know you more? Shouldn't that be, I mean, how often do we pray that? Calvin opened up his um, institutes by saying, nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourself. All the wisdom we possess is how we need to increase our knowledge of God and to have God show himself to us through his word, to reveal his true character, his true nature, well, that's as far as I got into verses 17 and 18. Um, the next section we will have to pick up next week. And so, if you are in need of prayers, I want to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you. <laughs>